Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. So, so uh, oh. oh, oh, you got something. Yeah, I feel like I have to do a punch buggy. Is that a thing still? A punch buggy. Like when you see you a beetle. Because we both said the right. same thing at the same time. Oh, see. Anyway, it's not sorry, a thing. I know you're talking about. Ask. Okay, right, go it, ahead. It is a thing. Don't tell me it's not a thing. Okay. <laughs> so I've been thinking about the podcast. And mm-hmm. since I've just become recently involved, I was wondering, how did how did you get into podcasting? How did this whole thing become Third Pod? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so Third Pod's been, I mean, for anyone, for any of our news listeners, if you go back and look at our catalog, we've been around for a while. We've been around for years. And the initial thought was that a group of folks at AGU who mm-hmm. were all in the kind of communication space. So it was the folks in sharing science who teach communication and our press office and our strategic communication folks, all of them. People who talk a lot. People who talk a lot, yeah, and who, <laughs> who, who talk about science a lot. Right. Um, essentially, there was this idea floated around like, hey, what if we start a podcast? And I have to admit, initially, I was not enthused about this idea because um, I, I love, I mean, I love this so much now, but I, I, I had some experience in other realms doing a little bit of podcasting stuff oh, and more did. on the storytelling side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like a little bit. And I just wanted to be very deliberate about it. I I didn't want us to just start a podcast because we're a society and we have publications and we should start a podcast. And so I wanted us us to like not just to summarize manuscript results or something like that, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted us to have a voice like figuratively Mm -hmm. and literally. Yeah. And so my involvement with it was basically, hey, Let's make sure no matter what we do, it's fun and at times silly and that it's not just, here's the news of the day from AGU, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So that's actually part of the reason why it was literally me on the mic and our colleague Nancy Mm -hmm. because we were (laughs) essentially voted the the people who had the biggest audio presence. Let's say that generously. (laughs) That's really uh, nice. Yeah. And then over the years, it's just, it's morphed a little bit. And then, yeah, this this year, literally, we've been pretty fortunate that it was like, all right, let's let's do something a little bit different and let's make this thing a weekly and make yeah. this a bigger part of my job, which I've been very excited by. And it gives me great joy. And I get to spend this lovely time with you, Vicky. I know. Um, it is lovely time. Roughly, however much we do this. But yeah, so that's 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 Third Pod and, and me. What about, what about you, Vicky? How did you get involved in podcasting? Oh, well, like most things, um, completely blindly and a little bit forced. <laughs> so you called me one day and said, hey, Vicky, do you want to do a podcast? You should do a podcast. And here we are. <laughs> thank you, Shane. I didn't. Did I for? No, you didn't force me. You didn't force I me. Did, but I did make you try out. Though. Yeah. Well, you just said, hey, hey Vicky, I have a question for you. And I was like, oh. Here we go. Like, hi, Vicky. Do you want to do this? Yeah. Try out first. All right. Great. Okay. Bye. All right. Well, I'm happy you're here. And this is so lovely. I'm happy too. It is lovely. (laughs) Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicky Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. 
Well, Vicky, it might surprise you that we are not actually talking about podcasting today. Absolutely shocking. Shocking. <laughs> I mean, we could. Who knows? Down the road, maybe we'll do an episode about science podcasting. Right. But for today, we're going to talk about making the most of opportunities. Though, we're going to veer away from the solid land under which my home studio is situated and wade into the oceans and for that, we need to soar into space. Okay. I have no, I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you saying? <laughs> oh, see, this is why I just don't try to be clever. Okay. So to actually get us on track, <laughs> right? So to actually get us on track, as usual, I'm going to bring in one of our producers, Anupama Chandrasekhar. Hi, Anupama. Hello, Shane and Vicky. I am absolutely thrilled to clear the haze for you. Yeah, so what's Shane talking about? Well, <laughs> simply put, Vicky, we are going to talk to a scientist today who has studied oceans with a bird's eye view. So not to nitpick, famous last words as I nitpick, <laughs> but shouldn't that be satellite's eye view? Are you ever wrong, Shane? I mean, <laughs> I was just speaking metaphorically, of course. It is a satellite view. But, you know, the truth is I really never knew about this until, like, really very recently. And apparently these satellite studies of the ocean have spanned nearly four decades. Yeah, and I... I... I like this a lot because I think we definitely need more research considering that, what, 70% of the Earth's surface is water, yet we know so little mm -hmm. about it. So just, just tell me more. Yeah, go on. What can satellites tell us about the oceans? Well, you know, I've just learned about all this recently, and apparently the color sensors aboard some satellites can actually reveal a lot about phytoplankton blooms that are linked to ocean temperatures. And phytoplankton, of course, are microalgae. But, you know, really, we can't be dismissive of their tiny size because they actually contribute to half the photosynthesis on the planet. That's 50%. I mean, we are talking about oxygen machines. I So you said you just like... You just learned about this. It's pretty impressive how much you already know about this. Are you are you our interview guest today? Are we just talking to you, Anupama? Well, that was a surprise. But, uh, well, I'm not <laughs> going to shock you, Shane. Uh, well, we actually have a real scientist. And his name is Charles McLean, who, among other things, has kind of traced the technological evolution along his career. I mean, imagine if you've kind of been in the scientific field since the 1970s, right, uh, up to the 2000s. I mean, he's got a great story to tell us about path-breaking research that he became part of in the late 1970s. And for this, he had to actually collaborate with biologists and space scientists. Great. Let's hear it. Hey, my name's Charles McLean. I... Um have a PhD in physical oceanography from North Carolina State University. I worked for nearly 37 years at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and my focus was on satellite ocean color observations and the interpretation of that data. And uh, I served as a um, laboratory chief towards the end of my career there, and that's about all. To start out, I'd like to say that I was really drawn to the title of your article, you know, An Unlikely Career in Satellite Ocean Biology, or OK, Now What? 
and it kind of lives up to its kind of title with all little details that span your scientific career from high school through you know 35 years at nasa so tell us where was the seed of this idea actually sown in your mind well i had a um bachelor's degree in physics and when i graduated i really wasn't sure what i wanted to do next the um department head of the um, college that I, I graduated from had suggested I go to graduate school and physics, but I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do. So I um, got a, a position at Anaconda Wire and Cable Corporation in my hometown, and I still was wondering, okay, what do I want to do? I don't want to stay in the, the business community, but I ran across an article or a, a special issue of Scientific America that Scientific American that was dedicated to oceanography, and that just sort of clicked with me. And so I started applying at graduate schools in oceanography and ended up at North Carolina State and subsequently graduated and did a postdoc at Naval Research Lab there in um, uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, eventually was offered a job at uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center to help with a, uh, a shuttle-borne uh, ocean color experiment. And that's how it kind of progressed. Yeah. For just as a primer or a background for people who are not familiar with some of the terminologies, particularly this whole idea of satellite ocean biology, can you tell us what we're talking about here? Okay. The uh, basic idea, and this was demonstrated with aircraft data back in the late 70s, is that the reflectance spectrum, uh, the shape of the spectrum of light being reflected out of the ocean is pretty much dependent on the amount of chlorophyll in the water, especially offshore where there isn't a lot of terrigenous material and it's mostly phytoplankton and chlorophyll. And there are a few other substances, but that kind of dominates the spectrum. And so the more chlorophyll is in the water, the less blue light gets uh, reflected out because chlorophyll absorbs blue light. And so the idea was that you could relate that to the concentration if you measured the spectrum. What was it like to take and be part of, you know, kind of a foundational team in this space of satellite ocean biology, you know, and what were your impressions initially? Well, I didn't have a clue about what ocean optics were, and I wasn't a biologist. But shortly after I arrived at Goddard, the Coastal Zone Color Scanner was launched on Nimbus 7 satellite, which was a proof of concept, but it had already had a, an experiment team associated with it. And so they were responsible for developing all the processing algorithms and demonstrating the utility of the uh, data. And as I outlined in the paper, as part of the shuttle mission, I conducted a um, U-2 overflight of a cruise off of Jacksonville, Florida. And in that aircraft data, we saw a very spectacular bloom along the Gulf Stream front. And and when you say bloom, you're talking about planktons over here or ocean plants or what what exactly? What happens in this particular event, um, there was an upwelling of nutrients along the Gulf Stream front, and that supported a, a bloom of phytoplankton. Typically in the open ocean, the concentrations are really low, but when you get a source of nutrients like this, the plants just grow with um, rapidity, doubling times for of the order of one or two times a day. It hadn't been, hadn't been observed before, and we just happened to be collecting satellite and aircraft data over the events. 
Wow. And how do you translate this information? Like, what does it tell us about what's going on, you know, on a, on a broader kind of global scale? What, how do you translate this for common people? Well, you think about um, terrestrial vegetation and you take the Great Plains, for instance, all the grasses and everything. Well, basically, phytoplankton are the grass of the ocean. And so it is the basis of the food web. So the plants grow, the um, zooplankton feed off that, and then the fish feed off the zooplankton and it goes right on up the food chain. And that's the importance of it. And plus, it has a very important role in the global carbon cycle because the ocean takes up a lot of carbon, both through plant growth and through other mechanisms. So especially in the era where we're concerned with global warming and, and CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, phytoplankton uh, play an important role in all of that. Phytoplankton sound like climate machines. Yeah, they are, Vicky. I mean, they are basically carbon pumps while providing oxygen, of course. So Chuck was at NASA from 78 to 2014. And I have to imagine there was a, like, there were a ton of changes in technology over those decades. I mean, any doubt about that? Chuck has even used an analog computer, and he really didn't even have access to the internet when he started out. Right, because the personal computer came out in the 70s, and the internet happened in the 80s. So doubt, how did his research transform with these like technological waves? If you look at discoveries and findings, you know, related to satellite ocean biology, what were kind of things that were supported because of this improvement in technology? Well, it's fundamental to the development of all of remote sensing that technology evolved in parallel with the science. And they fed off one another, of course. The, the better the technology, the more capable your sensors were, and the more insights you got into what was going on into the ocean. It wasn't just not just the biology, but it was atmospheric and terrestrial and sciences as well. You know, prior to the satellite era, you could only get data from ships, and the sampling was very sparse. Once the satellite data became available, then you could get global views of what was going on and how those processes uh, changed over time, the seasonality, the interannual variabilities on a global scale. And I think that opened a lot of eyes. We saw, you know, the spring bloom in the North Atlantic. We knew it was occurring, but the sampling uh, really wasn't very uh, extensive or the aerial extent of the bloom. And the same in, in a lot of other areas of the ocean, like the Arabian Sea. The monsoon season uh, causes a, a bloom every spring. And so I think it really opened a, a lot of eyes and a lot of opportunities for new research. So tell us a little bit about that, the collaborations that happened through the years. Well, you know, as you go through undergraduate school, you, you learn about famous scientists, and they're almost always working alone. You know, the Albert Einsteins and Madame Curies, they, they work very, in a very small group. But when you get into satellite projects, it's a team effort because there's so many elements to it. You have to work together with assigned responsibilities and everybody's relying on everybody else. And it's a real team environment. And the thing that I really appreciated was that we were all co-located. Everybody was in the same building, in the same hallways. There was a lot of interaction. People were constantly exchanging ideas. And 
what was it like for you to understand the oceans from space and and you've spoken about it earlier but you know what was it like for you personally you know to kind of understand the oceans because like you said you were not a biologist and here you were interacting with biologists as well as you know space researchers you know and satellite scientists so could you tell us a little bit about what you were learning about climate change as you know you were studying this data we have noticed changes over time on on at least a 20 year scale the same with sea surface temperatures there are trends in that as well and so they're kind of connected because the biology the stratification of of the ocean depends on temperature and if the stratification changes then the biology changes and so we've been looking at that one of the studies that we started early on um, was looking at the ocean gyres because most people look at the, the coastal areas because that's where much of the action is or or the uh, north atlantic or places like that but i was curious to see if we were seeing any changes in the in the basin scale gyres which it's it's a very strong ocean current basically right yes it's a big circular motion basically and it's all driven by the surface winds we wanted to see if these huge areas if we could see changes there very subtle changes and our initial analysis we published in um, 2004 i think we saw some indications that maybe the concentrations in chlorophyll were changing uh decreasing in some of the basins and i assume that that's coincides with increasing sea surface temperatures and let me expand on that why does temperature matter the ocean stratified so the warmer the water is at the surface the harder it is to bring nutrients to the surface because it's um the warmer water sits on top of the colder water and the greater the difference the harder it is to mix nutrients up to the surface and that's the basic concept yeah no that that makes sense and it's actually quite visual anything that you'd like to add in terms of you know any stories that really kind of stay in your mind when you're looking at your workspace and time any episodes well there are, there are a lot of them <laughs> starting with graduate school with the um guys that I I roomed with we did a lot of field work together it was a uh, a learning process we did we'd never done field work before and so there were a lot of trial and error and then um I think I mentioned several of these in the paper. I think um the day Norden told me that he was leaving North Carolina State University and going to NASA, I thought, "Oh my gosh, what am I going to do because how we how do we do this?" But that was a shock. I th- I think as I mentioned in the paper, each time I made this transition, I had to learn a whole new science. And fortunately, I was in a position where I had time to learn it. When I went to Uh, the naval research lab that was a totally different experience from what i had in, in graduate school but i had 2 years to figure things out and then when i went to nasa what was ocean color well i had to figure that out but the the system was very patient with me and it afforded me the opportunity to come up to speed learn and um uh move on from there and uh, i'm very grateful for that and well i i'll add one more thing there's a a mission scheduled to launch in early 2023 called pace in my mind it's a quantum leap in technology in terms of the sensor and its performance and the um spectral coverage it provides it, well i think um it will extend the ocean color time series the one that was started with seawis 
but it will add so much new information that you'll be able to infer a lot of new things that we haven't been able to do before with the hyperspectral data, like deconvolving what pigments are in the water and maybe even inferring what species of phytoplankton are in the water. If you know the pigment composition, then you can start with that information, then you can start seeing if species composition is changing spatially over time. Are the plants that were growing 20 years ago still growing there? Or are they migrating like a lot of land animals and are migrating with temperature change? So it's kind of analogous to that. We'll find out. I have a feeling that this study is going to give us a bunch of big reveals. Yeah, and I don't know whether they're going to be good or bad. It's certainly gonna, going to reveal a lot about warming oceans and the exponential destruction of flora and fauna. Yeah, it sounds like a, it's, it's like a train wreck in the making. Okay, all right, but let's not be doomsday pundits, right? So what if this data compels us to change our ways and prevent environmental degradation. I mean, I'm going to cross my fingers for that, Vicky, because I really want to shut my eyes and not Mm -hmm. want to be part of this environmental train wreck. Yeah, hopefully we can clean up the mess we've created. I mean, it's about time we did because satellites don't lie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I feel like there's a Sir Mix-a-Lot reference. out there oh man we that that will not happen on this podcast so instead that is all from third pod from the sun okay thanks so much anupama for bringing us this story and to chuck for sharing his work with us thank you this episode was produced by anupama with audio engineering from colin warren artwork by jay steiner we'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast rate and review us you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Maybe this will make it to the the Gen Zs. What are you guys, Gen Zs? Uh, Mm -mm. I think I'm the very oldest millennial. Yeah, (laughs) we are we are elder elder millennials. Let's say no. I had like my first my first computer was first computer we had in our house was ninety three ninety two. It was like an Apple. G something wow. like one of the like the first standalone apples they had with the with green screens, or with yeah. DOS, was DOS with, on Apple? No, DOS. it was like it was Apple's whatever their OS. But yeah, that was the first one we had. So I'm I am of we are of the we didn't have computers at one point generation. Well, you probably had a computer way before even I've had. I think I had my first computer in '96 or something like way way. The early. first PC we had, yeah. I remember, was '95 because my brother graduated high school and he went to college for computer computer programming and my parents bought oh. him a gateway oh wow. and Big he deal. spent it was yeah and he spent it was like for christmas and he spent it didn't work and literally <laughs> well, like it wouldn't register the mouse or the keyboard or something and he spent the first like morning ripping this brand new computer apart that my parents spent like at the time thousands of dollars like this is a really expensive thing and my parents were freaking out he's like don't I worry i know say. what i'm doing He fixed it. Like, he got it all working.